This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today, we talk about COVID-19 with some experts. Alison Buttenheim is an Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Pennsylvania. She studies behavioral health-related decisions, and she is now running a Facebook and Instagram publication called Dear Pandemic. Uh, welcome, Alison. Thank you so much. Malia Jones is an assistant scientist at the Applied Population Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She looks at epidemics and maps and has a new book, a kid's book, about COVID-19 coming out. Uh, Welcome, Malia. Where can uh, people get that book? People can download it for free at akidsbookabout.com. And Amy Sin is an associate professor of sociology at Queens College in the City University of New York. She's an expert on education and immigration, and she uh, was working with the uh, New York City Department of Education on the school response to COVID-19. Thank you for coming on, Amy. Thank you. So thank you for all of you coming. I guess this is really your moment, isn't it? The infectious disease crowd is uh, making the rounds. Molly, I heard you were on Dr. Phil. That's right. Yeah, it aired on Tuesday. Uh, I think it re-aired yesterday based on my inbox yesterday. It taped last week, though. And as you know, the situation is changing really, really quickly. So I had some doubts that they would even be able to air it a week on. But uh, they went ahead and and did that. I know we're supposed to be talking about the pandemic, but just like 20 seconds. What what was it like? (laughs) Well, I I Skyped in to Dr. Phil. They they begged me to fly from Madison, Wisconsin to Los Angeles. And I said, uh, hard no. There's there's 0% chance that I can fly to Los Angeles to deliver the message that everyone really does need to cancel their spring break, right? Right. Um, one of the other experts in my segment actually did fly there from, from Toronto um, to deliver his message, which was that this is, this is no big deal. Everybody should just calm down. Oh, really? <laughs> so, so I was, I was on by Skype, um, which was a weird experience because I wasn't there in the room. I couldn't really have a dialogue. They, I had to sort of wait my turn for Dr. Phil to turn to me. And, um, you know, you get a very short window to get your words in. Uh, and on top of that, Dr. Phil asked me a lot of questions that, you know, he had, uh, an immunologist, a PhD immunologist, and then uh, two medical doctors on the show. And one of the only questions he asked me was, what should people do when they feel sick? And I was like, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> they should stay home. That's my public health expertise right there. So you wanted to fly me to LA for that? <laughs> it, it was, I, you know, I'm an introvert and I, I, um, I found it very stressful personally. It was it was a very stressful day. Um, but I f- went ahead and did it uh, because millions of people watched Dr. Phil and I really wanted to have the opportunity to say, uh, it's important, slow it down, stay home. It's important, slow it down, stay home. It's important, so, slow it down, stay home to millions of people. So I, I think I achieved that uh, more or less. <laughs> But no, you didn't get a swag bag or anything like that. I did not get a swag bag. I didn't get hair and makeup. They did have me find a very academic looking setting. Bookshelf. And yeah, so I, I was. It's like law volumes. It was like a 
bookshelf. It was actually the Ag Hall Library, which is just a couple doors down from me. But it's it's like this old library full of dusty books. So I'm sitting in front of a whole bunch of very like 1950s volumes of of uh, rural sociology. Well, I'm very grateful that you came in. So just the the idea behind this is. Uh... You know, a lot of us are are on the internet talking about COVID nineteen, and it's like uh, there's a, I'm sure there's a lot of amateur epidemiology going on on social media, and it's probably a good idea for us to bring on some actual experts on the topic. So I'm I'm very grateful uh, for you guys uh, making the time to come in. Maybe we can get started uh, just you know to get everybody uh, up to speed. Can we start? Off? How did this virus start? Well, what happened? We're all looking at you, Malia, even though we're just on audio here. <laughs> oh, okay. So I, I can tell you what I know. Um, first of all, maybe I should tell you that I don't normally study coronaviruses at all. None nor, of us nor do. do I. Uh, the people yeah. who study coronaviruses are super busy and are not doing podcasts right now. <laughs> right. They're, they're actually trying to save the world. Um, what I normally study is, I do study epidemics, uh, usually uh, people who don't want to vaccinate their kids and how they cluster in space. So, so there's no vaccine for this. It is a little outside my wheelhouse, but I can tell you what, what we know from my read of what's going on. Please. It looks like what happened was that, you know, coronaviruses are a whole family of viruses. There's lots of them out there in the world and they circulate in human populations. Uh, there are a few other ones that are common in humans that you've probably never heard of. They cause like, you know, fever and sniffles and typical virus symptoms. There are lots of them that circulate in animals. All kinds of animals have coronaviruses. And like all viruses, they periodically uh, mutate. They go through some genetic change that makes them better adapted to infect a new host. And so what we think happened here was that uh, there, this, the genetic ancestor to this virus was circulating in some animal population for who knows how long. And somehow last fall, uh, it adapted to infect humans. Hmm. And in addition, it adapted uh, not only to infect one human from its animal host, but, but it's very well adapted to infect from human to human, so human to human transmission. And so we have this new virus to for humans. And uh, that started, that happened sometime last fall. Uh, it happened in China. Um, there's been some talk about this uh, large market in the city of Wuhan. It actually looks like that's not where the first infection occurred from animal to human. The first infections happened uh, in people that were not at that market, but the human to human transmission may have started at that market. How do you know? How do you know that? Yeah. Like, what do they do to fi fi figure that out? Microbiologists are super smart. All right. <laughs> that's, that's what I know about that. I just, I just, this is what I've read. I, I'm not a microbiologist. All right. <laughs> Anyhow, go on. I didn't mean to, to detain you. So uh, it, it transmitted somewhere. Uh, are we basically one bad mutation away from like, you know, the contagion virus like from the movie contagion where people start dropping dead like how at the brink are we with these infectious diseases is it an ever-present danger 
Or is this like a one in a million could never happen black swan? No, it's definitely something that public health worries about all the time. Hmm. I mean, when you go to public health graduate school, you you take a whole class in this. Uh, So the one that we typically worry about, though, is pandemic novel influenza. Uh, The fact that this is coronavirus is a bit of a surprise, but not a total surprise because we actually had something very similar happen in 2003, the SARS outbreak. What is a gen- SARS is a genetic cousin to this virus. And uh, in that case, the, the outbreak was contained successfully. And in this case, it was not because it seems like because of some uh, some of the transmission dynamics here are harder to contain. Um, but it's it was actually a, a, in some ways a similar disease. So, no, it's not a total surprise. I remember SARS, uh, the SARS epidemic, mostly just because I watch Canadian news and I remember a case got into Toronto and there was panic uh, about it. And uh, Hong Kong was particularly hit by SARS in comparison to the rest of the world. And they developed some some reactions to or maybe a cognizance of the importance of of proactive, you know, proactive prevention, preventative measures uh, in the face of a, a disease. What did Hong Kong do? When this coronavirus, you know, when we became aware of it and it started making its rounds, how did Hong Kong react and how is it different from what we're doing here in the United States? I don't know the Hong Kong story specifically, but I can talk about sort of variations in country response. So it looks like countries adjacent to China that had the SARS experience in 2003 have done better than some other countries, say in Europe or the U.S. in Mm -hmm. getting out ahead of this. Um, it's been tempting in the U.S. to say, oh, it's not so bad yet. There's only 10 cases. There's only 100 cases. In our city, there's only 10 cases. We don't need to shut the schools down yet. But I think places like Hong Kong that had the SARS experience and also are much smaller countries with governments that can do much more um, sort of heavy-handed things without so much pushback said, you know, 10 cases, we're shutting stuff down. Um, And because of the the lag with infectious diseases, right? There's a there's a incubation period from when you're infected to when you start showing symptoms. Um, you have to start doing those things when you see just a few cases. Um, mm-hmm. And we can see very clearly in the U.S. right now, especially in New York, that the measures, the very you know the sort of shelter in place measures that we're doing now, came late in the outbreak when there was already a lot of virus circulating, already a lot of cases. Um, so we didn't, you know, we didn't flatten the curve. That's a term we've been hearing a lot. The way some other countries were able to do much more successfully. But, but like public health experts knew knew about this, right? Like they had an idea what to do, and we didn't react somehow. Uh, so my understanding is what Hong Kong did was uh, they they were very aggressive with quarantining. Am I right about that? Because yep. like, as soon as there was a sense that something could happen. They were extremely aggressive. They like locked the country down immediately. And we sort of proceeded with an understanding that the virus is out there somewhere, but an inability to do anything or an unwillingness or who knows what. Maybe this is a a great question for you, Allison. Why? Like, why? Why didn't we react proactively, given that there were real world cases uh, that we could model on? Well, we know we have a really unique political situation. Um, we can talk about the European cases being a little bit different, 
But right. you know, I'm sure you've heard the news, you know, um, Trump's administration cut the CDC's uh, basically pandemic preparedness staff by 80%. We had professionals whose job it was to anticipate and prepare for and identify outbreaks early. That staff is basically gone. Um, and uh, it seems like, you know, the Trump administration has been very reluctant to have uh, this be taken seriously. It's, you know, it's sort of bad news health-wise, it's bad news, you know, economics-wise, um, and just step after step in the last six weeks has been the wrong step in getting out ahead of this. You know, I know the people who work at the CDC and at the state level, all this, you know, the state emergency preparedness people and the um, pandemic there are professionals that in the state level too who work on pandemic uh, readiness and pandemic response, and they are working their asses off. Um, and it's really unfortunate that CDC was not in a position to provide national leadership early on here because we really could have used some better, uh, stronger messaging early on and some identification of of uh, what the appropriate next steps were and when coming from our federal public health body. And we were not able to get that. From the city level, it's also just the politics and the logistics of, you know, around school closure, for example, is so fraught um, that, I mean, um, you know, to give you an idea, I live in New York City, and New York City is, has the largest school system in the country, 1.1 million um, um, students, and LA, LA Unified School District is the second largest, and the difference between New York City and LA is 400,000 children. Wow. Um, so, you know, when you think about, even if they had an extra month to prepare um, it would have been a really difficult thing to do, right? So 1.1 million children in the school system, two thirds are low income. We have mm -hmm. about 100,000 um, children in the school system that are homeless, that rely on schools to do their laundry. Um, many, wow. many, um, you know, uh, students rely on schools to provide food. Um, New York City provides lunch, breakfast, and, and all year round, even when there's no holiday, when, when there's no school during holidays during the summer, and so that's for many families. That's how children get food or fed, right? And so, um, so to close down schools, um, you know, uh, it, it, logistically it was really really hard, and and to figure out how do we deliver basic services um, to vulnerable populations, but also to um, essential city workers. Um, you know, if you close down schools, how do nurses, um, doctors, and and essential city workers who need to run that keep the subway going? How do they continue working, right? And so, you know, developing a rapid response and 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 getting that staffed and and, and in place for a city that's this large was just really uh, logistically difficult. It's amazing, you know. It, 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 is this maybe a byproduct of of the fact that in America we're just relying on our, our schools to do too much? Like it's, I mean, you're basically pressing a million kids into transit and interaction because New York City is relying on schools to provide like poor aid and housing services and a lot of basic, a lot of ba you know, basic livelihood type of necessities. Is that 
like it, it, that's sort of the situation we we put ourselves in. I think this this pandemic has revealed a lot about what's wrong in our society. I mean, health the lack yeah. the lack of healthcare, what we demand from schools to provide poverty, um, insecurity all around. I mean, I think that this this is what we're seeing. And trying the to kind absence of, yeah. of paid sick leave yes. across many sectors mm-hmm. of employed people. Mm-hmm. Um, homelessness is a huge challenge in a pandemic. You know, our prison populations are at serious risk uh, because they're in crowded situations you mm-hmm. know, without any real ability to, to practice the, some of these guidelines. I think, you know, it's, I, I am really sensitive to the harm that is being done to the most vulnerable people in our society by the measures that we're taking. This is doing harm. Uh, but we, we don't have any good options right now. I don't think that realistically anyone can accept the outcomes that we would face if we just let it took a, let it burn (sighs) policy and did nothing. Mm -hmm. So, I, our only choice is to do things that are really going, that are actively harming many people. Malimi, can you flesh that out a little? Like, uh, obviously we know we've, we've seen Italy and we know a lot of people are going to be on hospitals and we've heard about ventilator shortages and we've heard about Uber drivers who are missing paychecks. But beyond that, can you maybe give us a sense of like the broader array of social problems that might emerge by virtue of the fact that this disease might be with us for a while. Is there, so there's, there's the economic. Yeah. I mean, you know, the economic impacts and the impact on uh, families who have had their, their lives disrupted in the services that they rely on uh, canceled is, Mm -hmm. is hard to overstate. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who are getting no, paychecks and no unemployment and uh, have no health insurance that they can realistically pay for and, and don't, you know, small business owners and uh, gig workers and uh, service employees who are suddenly earning nothing. And so what are, what are they supposed to eat or pay their rent with? It's incredibly stressful. And that damage, even if it were a brief interruption would be, very hard to recover from. Um, but it, it's not going to be a brief interruption. This is this is probably going to go on for a while, at least to some extent. And maybe, maybe cycle in and out, which yeah. I think people aren't prepared for. We, we're hearing a lot of questions like, how long are we in this sort of lockdown or shelter in place mode? And that's probably two to three months. But at that point, it's not like the whole country is now immune. We won't have a vaccine yet. We won't have gotten to a 60% herd immunity threshold, which means we sort of turn the faucet back on a little bit for some social contact and then probably have to turn it off again. And I think, I mean, I have a kid graduating from high school, heading off to college. Um, I don't know how college runs next year. I don't know how universities yeah. and colleges, let alone you know, schools, secondary schools and elementary schools, even make a plan for the 2020, 2020 2021 year. I want to return to the idea of the Amy was talking about the how challenging it was logistically to get the New York City schools closed because you've got to figure out what to do with those 1.1 million kids who need school for a variety of reasons that go well beyond just learning their math facts. Um, the I it's 
the the situation has changed so fast that you know, like I said, I was on Dr. Phil last Tuesday, and I wasn't sure they would be able to air that show by the next Tuesday. Um, here in Madison, we we have a much smaller population and smaller school district, and I started thinking, oh man, we really need to get the schools closed last Monday. And by Friday, I was in like full panic mode, writing open letters and begging yeah. <laughs> people to voluntarily keep their children home because it, it had it had changed that quickly, mm-hmm. and and asking a huge administrative administration of any kind to respond that quickly is really really challenging. I, I just wanted to parenthetically put in, uh, so you might hear noise in my background. My wife is running a religious service from my uh, living room. On teleconferencing, so that's okay. You uh, might hear noise in my background because my husband is homeschooling my children yeah. in the other room. I'm just surprised that there hasn't been an interruption yet because I think all yeah. of us are in that similar no situation. Cats. I know it's my first <laughs> teleconference with no cats walking across the keyboard before we got started here. So um, for you all. Well, and you know, we were talking about the stresses the stresses on families when schools close. We have all yeah. these parents now basically being asked to homeschool with varying degrees of support from the school. Um, yeah, and I don't know how you guys with smaller kids are doing it. It's it seems I, very hard. I have I have to tell you. So in my highly segre- economically segregated community, the response has been excellent. Um, you know, uh, I guess everybody in the community has all of the technology they need and, uh, we were ready to go. And I I get the sense that this is not happening in other school districts and this could amount to like an extra year of schooling, uh, in terms of the, the schooling differential between, you know, wealthy communities and poor communities. It's going to increase inequality. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, tremendously. Next year or next week, um, New York City has will move online. The, the school system will move teaching online. Mm-hmm. But, you know, families don't have computers. Families don't have Internet. Um, yeah. Or, you know, you have families with one computer, with one family, one family member trying to work. Yeah. How, you know, and multiple children at home. How does that happen? Right. I mean, I'm not worried because I'm a professor and so is my husband. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not worried about providing structured instruction to my kids because we basically, you know, they just absorb being around us information yeah. and that's fine. Right. But that's not what's happening um, in many other families. And so it's inequality is just going to increase. What are we going to do even in New York city? Are they going to provide computers to young people? Like, is there a plan? They're sorting it out, right? So what New York City has done is they have created um, uh, childcare centers for essential city workers okay. because that's what held up um, closure for a few days because the city was negotiating with health with city workers uh, because they need to staff um, the hospitals, right? And 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 rightfully so. And so there, 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 there exists some kind of childcare centers, instructional centers for essential city workers. And I think that there, it's still going to be in a classroom environment. Last thing I heard was there going to be twelve kids to a class, mm-hmm. and so those children will continue getting instruction in a classroom setting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there are efforts to provide tablets, um, 
um, to families that that don't have tablets and don't have um, computers at home. But I'm I'm not sure how that's going to be delivered and what. Probably no one's sure. I mean, I'm sure it's yeah. a it's a huge ask to figure out how to get over a million kids uh, just in one city yeah. on the internet with mm-hmm, a home mm-hmm. computer and adult supervision in like three days, mm-hmm. right? In um, Philadelphia, yeah. Philadelphia is, I think, the poorest of the top 10 cities in the U.S. by size. Same debates that was go- that were going on in New York and slower to close than some other places. And I want to fact check this before it goes into the podcast, but the last I heard their plan was no online instruction because they could not guarantee sort of equity and coverage, that there were going to be such disparities in families' abilities to take advantage of that, that they're just saying there's just no instruction. There's not. That's uh, actually Madison's approach too. Madison has the biggest racial inequalities in terms of some outcomes in the United States. And, uh, and the school district is very sensitive to trying to address those inequalities. And as a result, they're providing no online instruction at all. There's some enrichment materials available through the libraries, but there's no requirement or expectation that we do it because they don't want to exacerbate the already existing racial inequality here. But do you, what do you think of that move? I mean, private schools, people, you know, people, who have the means to purchase private educational services or people who send their children to private school are going to continue to have their children taught. Doesn't it, doesn't it just change the sort of the dividing line of, of inequalities between maybe like the top or like the median and the the top and bottom half. Doesn't it just change it to like the, you know, the top 5% of kids or 2% of kids in terms of wealth are going to get a continuance of education. What are your opinions on that? Is, is my, I don't think there's any avoiding the fact that this is going to make life worse for the people who are most vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and there's a variety of, of a lot of people are sensitive to that. You know, people who go into public education as a, as a career are not generally out to uh, harm the middle class or the lower class, the working class. Right. Um. So people are really sensitive to that. I just think we don't have any good options at all. Yeah. And we're trying to sort it out some mitigation strategies, but it takes time and we haven't had any time. So, you know, you ask what is next year going to look like? I don't Nobody knows what yeah. next year is going to look like. We have no clue. I mean, what's your, what's your reaction to that? I mean, we're, we both serve at a, an institution that serves working class families and economically distressed people. And to be honest, my reaction to this, I've seen this uh, idea that because it's un, there's inequality that schools should shut down. And I've reacted to it quite poorly on, on behalf of, you know, our students. I feel like it, it, it just disadvantages them uh, against the kids at Columbia or NY, who go to NYU and that we actually do damage by uh, by not providing some type of resources. What 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 have your feelings been on this? I I also I when I you know right now the problems that we're facing or when I think of we're facing as a nation and our students are facing is there's a shortage of masks mm-hmm. um, for for doctors and nurses working in hospitals. 
Um, our students, our, their parents and themselves are losing jobs. They're not being able to pay rent. Um, they're in triage and everyone's yeah. in triage. And I, I understand this concern about like, should we go online and how should we go online? And are we reaching people? And, you know, is my curriculum, it, 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 it's going to be as effective as it, as it could be if it were in class mm. or like not just second order, yeah. they're kind of fourth, yeah. fifth, tenth order. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, and mm. so I, I try to put that everything into perspective here, yeah. right? Because, um, you know, higher ed um, and the problems of higher ed aren't, aren't, I think, that important right now. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree I with also that. just, I want to add to that, that I, I would love if everybody could, like, have some mental flexibility and a little patience because, you know, yeah. we're getting this, uh, I think one of the bright spots here is that we have never, I have never seen the scientific community respond so quickly and publicly to anything. And so we're literally getting new information every single day. And sometimes it contradicts the information we got yesterday because it's emerging really, really fast. And so, you know, if everybody could just have a little patience with their professors uh, dealing with their cats and their kids while they're (laughs) trying to teach and, and, um, and, you know, rolling with some, new and possibly conflicting information coming out and not nobody knowing quite what's going on. That's the reality right now. Uh, And I think some awareness of where your issues and questions and concerns are on that urgency list. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, it's almost in my mind, almost like a hashtag, like not at the top of the list. Um, I was worried. I was worried the other day, like, oh, I think I left some like dirty dishes at my office before I like fled my office. I'm like, not at the top of the list. Um, but even you know, like my high school senior daughter, like, there's probably no prom. There's probably no graduation. Like, that's yeah. bad. That's not at the top of the list either. So. Yeah, it's like first world problems. Let's talk about long term changes, though, right? So we're in a how, how is society? First, let's talk about medium term changes. How is society going to change in the next, you know, uh, few months? You think, like, what, what, you know, what, what patterns of life are are, are going to change? How are social relations going to change? And how's our welfare going to be affected? Wow, yeah. I, well, I have I have hopes uh-huh. about some of the things that I hope will change. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is that one of the things that we're seeing already is that. Um, air pollution levels have dropped mm-hmm. to like almost pre-industrial levels <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in some places. Um, mm-hmm. I saw something, I saw an image of the air pollution monitors in Los Angeles, which you can access publicly and get live information about air pollution in LA. And they are taking readings that are lower than they have ever taken since air monitors were installed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, people are not, uh, not doing non-essential flying, uh, which has huge environmental impacts. Um, mm-hmm. People are telecommuting more mm-hmm. instead of, uh, uh, you know, showing up to work for the sake of having uh, clocked in there when they yeah. don't need to necessarily. Those of us who can telecommute are doing that. And we have this other public health crisis that that also needs a dramatic, globally coordinated immediate response, that global warming thing. Mm. And uh, in some ways, I feel like that, you know, the answer is at least partially right in front of us. We need to rethink the way we use resources uh, as a society and as a world. And 
And some of the changes that we have made are not things we could implement forever. You know, I definitely don't want to homeschool my children and never leave my house again. But some of the other things that we need to implement here could really help on that front. And so I hope we can learn a few lessons about the changes we need to make uh, in order to avert disaster or mitigate disaster for global warming. Mm -hmm. This Uh, has really been um, disruptive also in a positive way for telehealth. I think there were so many barriers uh, in place for trying to get telehealth going. We we knew we needed it. We knew we could do it, but there were, you know, regulatory and payment and just, you know, social norms, norms around delivering healthcare. And that's, you know, that's gone. Like we're doing telehealth now and people can practice across state lines and people can bill for it. And I've seen a lot of tweets from primary care docs saying this works great. I can, I can, I can do my job as a primary care doctor on zoom uh, pretty, pretty well. So I think, and I don't think we're going back. Like, I think that's a, that's a one way, that's a one way change. I know. Yeah, I think. No, Amy. No. Oh, no, no. I I just think also, I mean, this move towards online now that every university and also K through 12 schools have been forced to build really rapidly an infrastructure to deliver education online um, that's going to have momentum, mm-hmm. right? And that's going to continue and it's going to change, um, especially higher ed, but also I think K through 12 um, in profound ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking of uh, uh, the the director of the Center of Teaching and Learning at, at our institution has spent like a decade pleading with people to just try some online stuff to mm-hmm. no avail. And now we're all forced to do it. And on the department list, sir, people are like, you know what? This isn't so bad. And, yeah. uh, you know, first of all, everybody who spent the past, you know, decade toiling in the basement on pedagogy methods, not getting the respect they deserve. Boy, aren't we happy that they, they were on <laughs> staff and that we had invested resources in them for just this moment. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> like a salute to everybody who's been doing that work, that thankless job for like years and years. I notice when I'm booking podcasts or when I'm uh, trying to book, uh, you know, interviews or meetings with people who I've been working with on research projects, everybody has a lot of time in a way. Uh, and I, I'm wondering, like, I mean, I'm sure not in your world, probably everybody's very, very busy. But in the world of economic sociology and media sociology, it's been a little freer. Um, and I'm wondering how much uh, how much time we've been sinking into unproductive things like face putting in FaceTime, commuting to campus to put in FaceTime, you know, uh, detached from work. And I could see a lot of this not continuing, you know. Um, so maybe there will be benefits in terms of productivity and more family. And I think institutionally, so I work at a school of nursing, tons of, you know, curricular and administrative initiatives ongoing. And it's been really interesting to see in the past two weeks, the ones where people are just like, not important. Like we, you know, maybe we never have to do that thing, or maybe we just talk about it in six months. There's a real paring down to sort of, you know, mission continuity and what are we really about? And you know, right now we're about getting senior nursing students graduated and in practice. Like that's, if it, like it isn't related to that, we're not working on it. What well, do you think, is there any bright sides of this besides the, so definitely the, the, uh, 
the the change in the environment. What about like families or health? Is there any concern on that front? Uh, mental health, loneliness. What are people talking about in your world? I think one of my other hopes here is that, you know, before, aside from the pandemic of COVID-19 that we're facing, the most serious infectious disease that the United States deals with on a regular basis is influenza, seasonal flu. Hmm. And uh, the same prevention methods, just basic hand face hygiene and hand washing also prevent flu transmission. And, Uh. And also, we have a vaccine for flu that a lot of people still don't get. And so one of my hopes here is that people get this public health message that you really do need to wash your hands. And like, maybe we could keep doing that elbow bump instead of shaking hands with people. And that we would see a lot less flu deaths as well. That, that would be a terrific uh, public health win. If, if everybody uh, started practicing these things for flu prevention, even if COVID-19 disappeared magically tomorrow. On a personal level, it has made this has made me grapple with how non-essential I am <laughs> in my profession. I mean, you two are healthcare professionals, and you actually have expertise to to offer to the world. Um, but you know, as a sociologist, I I feel like I need to learn how to do some basic things like how to fix a car, or I don't know, carpentry, or you know. <laughs> gardening these like essential things that actually may matter for my survival (laughs) i don't know i I would push back on that a little bit amy because just like (laughs) seeing your your sort of conversations and and statements on twitter um your perspective on educational inequality while you were simultaneously pushing for the schools to close was really important um and i think this is this is a very you know, intersectional problem. We need the perspectives from literally every academic discipline and and sort of sets of theories and frameworks to think about a way to get through this, you know, intact as a country. So I would say and very, just very essential. Amplify, Thank you. Yeah, I just want to amplify that and say that public health, we already know that the biggest public health threat to people in the United States is poverty. And this is going to exacerbate poverty. So we've got this other, this, you know, sort of um, externality to deal with. And sociologists are very well equipped to address that problem from an academic perspective. Oh, maybe we can close on that. You guys have any good <laughs> research good. ideas? <laughs> what do we Mic drop. Mic drop. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> You've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Thank you to our guest, Allison Buttenheim from uh, the University of Pennsylvania, Associate Professor of Nursing, Malia Jones, Assistant Scientist at the Applied Population Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and my esteemed colleague, Amy Sin, Associate Professor of Sociology at Queens College in the City University of New York. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Facebook at uh, the Annex Sociology Podcast, and on Twitter at Sociannex. Our producer is Liseth Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.